0: Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, friends. Uh, You can open up your Bibles to wherever you want, because we're going to be jumping a lot of different places this morning. And I'm looking forward to sharing with you as we continue our series, Actors, I want to start by making a statement, and then I want you to try to help me with this, and you can indicate to me whether you think this is a fair statement or not. I I think this is true. Uh, I think that a lot of times in life, we can't see as clearly as we'd like. True enough? You know, uh, I've always been fascinated by vision. By literal vision, I've always thought the eye was a really interesting instrument. I think it's one of God's coolest creations. I think eyes are beautiful. I think the way that eye works is just crazy. And when I was grown up. I, um, if I had not gone into ministry, if I would not gone this path with my life, I am pretty certain I would have been an optometrist. It was something that I always thought was cool. It was something that I considered doing. I love vision. I love eyes. And, and of course, I have glasses and have for, for a long time. And um, you know, when you have kids, they, they think glasses are interesting and they like to poke in your eyeballs and that sort of stuff. Carson's way into like, leave your eye open, daddy. Let me touch it. No. Why would I do that? I'd see what you do with your fingers. No, not happening. And that they want to wear your glasses and things. And recently, Claire asked me something new. She said, how come like you could see, but now you can't see? (laughs) And I don't know how the process works. I just know that when I take these things off, the world around me is blurry. You know what I mean? And like I said, I think it's uh, safe to say that, that most of the time, most of us can't see life in 2020. And I don't just mean physical objects. I mean God, ourselves, our past, present, and future. We're trying to look at all of this and understand it and live well within it. And there's just a lot of times when we say, I can't see things as well as I'd like. And I would love to be able to promise to you that this message today and our time together today is going to be like putting on spiritual glasses. And then everything is going to be perfectly clear. I'd like to be able to say that. I can't. I won't. Can't promise that. That's not a possible thing. I don't think you can turn people into God, you know? He's the one who sees perfectly. We don't. Part of how it is. I do think, though, that I can promise you that we're going to discuss and reflect on a single truth today. A single idea that has the power to help us live well, even though we can't see everything. It's a truth, an idea that is particularly relevant to anybody who has ever failed or been confused or been disappointed or simply not been in control of everything about their life. I'm not going to tell you yet what the idea is, but I want to give you a hint by showing you a picture of a tapestry. Take a look at this. This is not two tapestries. If you looked at this, you might be tempted to think, if you don't know how tapestries work, that on the left, you see a a tapestry gone well, gone right. You can see the face of this person. It's a Frenchman. You can understand this is him, whoever he is. Look at the one on the right, and you might think, man, that one didn't turn out so well. Not the case. This is the same piece of art. On the front side of a tapestry, you can see everything clearly, but the back side of a tapestry, not so much. You can kind of make out the general shape of what you're looking at. You can tell that it's a person, but you can't make out any of the features. And there's just a bunch of threads everywhere. Any tapestry will look this way. One side is clear, uh, the other side, not so much. I'm hoping you can see the relevance of this picture uh, by the time we get to the end. The truth that I want to talk about that has the power to change the way we look at every day of our lives comes from the life of Paul. Uh, Zach mentioned that we're going to be studying the life of Paul today as we continue in our actors series. We've been studying the book of Acts, but we're not looking at every single verse. We're looking at the main characters and some of the minor characters and asking, how can we learn about our life with God by looking at their lives with God? And, And up today is the life of Paul. Now, Paul There's a lot about Paul in the New Testament. He wrote about a quarter of it, and over half of the book of Acts focuses on his life. There's a lot that we could talk about today. And what I want to do is, first, I just want to give you an overview of his story. We're going to tell his story, mostly from the book of Acts, and then we'll fill in some of the details with his letters, and then see if we can't focus ourselves in on one particular truth that emerges from his life. So, Paul's life story I want to show you some maps and talk through some events because I just want us to make sure we remember this is not a fairy tale. This is not a make-believe character. This is a real guy who lived at a real time, in real places, and did real things. An actual life in certain ways, kind of like ours. In other ways, maybe not so much. So let's pick it up at the place of his birth. Saul, which was his name at the time, would later become Paul, was born in Tarsus in about 5 AD. Take a look at this map. I want to show you where it's at. All these dates are approximate. You can't know these things with exact certainty for the most part, but we can know with within a range. Probably born about 5 AD in the city of Tarsus. It's circled there on the map in green. Now, let's get our bearings. We're looking at a map of, uh, of a portion of the world that certainly still looks much like this today. You have the Mediterranean Sea. There is the big body of water. And to uh, the south of it is actually Africa, the northern tip of Africa. To the, to the east or the right of the picture is, you can see there, the little strip of land. That's Israel. Beyond that today is uh, Iraq, Iran, those types of places. Uh, So that's what we're looking at there. Then it curves up around and you have that main body of land in between the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea. That was known as Asia Minor in Paul's world. It's Turkey today. You're looking at modern day Turkey. Then you go on to the middle top and you've got there Greece. And then at the top left, you're looking at the boot of Italy. Beyond that, you have Spain and the rest of Europe. So this is Paul's world this area here. And that city, Tarsus, still a city today in Turkey. I've been there. It looks much like any other modern city in, in Turkey. It's right there on the map there in Eastern Turkey, Eastern Asia Minor. That's where Saul was born. That's where Paul was born. Now, what do you need to know about Turkey or about uh, Tarsus to understand Paul is mainly that it was an intellectual hot spot, like second in the world. The, the place where you would go to get ideas, first of all, was Athens. That's where Socrates and... Plato and Aristotle and all of those types of people lived and different people would gather together to talk about ideas. Great intellectual city. Tarsus was number two, not far behind. So it's kind of like Yale to Harvard. Still a pretty good school. Tarsus, still a pretty good place. So Paul would have been raised in this environment that prized education and that taught philosophy. He would have learned quite a bit. There was a lot of pride taken in Greek culture there. That's one thing. Secondly, Paul was born in Tarsus to a family that had Roman citizenship. We don't know how they got it, but they had it and he was born with it. This meant that in the Roman world, he had some political advantages. He could go certain places, do certain things. He had certain freedoms and privileges that were only available to Roman citizens. And because he was born with his Roman citizenship, he didn't have to buy it or trade for it or earn it. He had a certain status in the eyes of many. Third thing I want you to know about Saul's upbringing in Tarsus was he was born to conservative Jewish parents who made sure he knew the Bible. They taught him Hebrew so he could learn it in its original language. They made sure he understood the content, knew what it meant, was very faithful. It was a family that took faith seriously. So he had grown in this sort of cross section of worlds and he lived there for We don't know exactly how long, about 5 or 10 years. And when he was somewhere in between the ages of 5 and 10, maybe 5 and 15, he moved. Maybe with his family, maybe alone. We're not sure. We know where he went, though. He went to Jerusalem. So take a look, and you can see the journey that Paul took from Tarsus up there in Asia Minor down south up to Jerusalem, where he lived for a couple of decades there in Jerusalem. Now, he got to Jerusalem. Now, in their world, you would go to Jerusalem because it was the center of everything. As a Jewish person, then if you could choose where to live, this would absolutely be where you'd live because the temple's there. So you've got sacrifices that you can offer to God. You can be in God's presence. I mean, this is the place to be. You can study under rabbis so that you understand the scriptures. And that's what Paul did. He studied under the greatest rabbi of his day and he became one of his greatest students. He was passionate. He was committed. He worked hard. He raised up above many of his peers He grew in this this fervent zeal for God, and it actually turned out to to turn him into a violent person. We're not strangers to this. In our world, we understand that certain people's religious commitments makes them think that the best way to be faithful is to engage in violence. This happened to Paul. He attacked Christians. Around the time Jesus came and ministered, lived, died, rose again, a bunch of people are talking about Jesus as the Messiah. Paul wants nothing to do with it. Matter of fact, he doesn't want you to have anything to do with it. And he made it his mission to go around and stop Christians. How are you going to say he's the Messiah? He died. How are you going to say this is the way the story is fulfilled? It's not. How are you claiming to be faithful to God? You're not. We know because we have this Old Testament. We don't need any of the things you're saying. We're going to do away with you. Now, I don't know if you remember, but we've already seen where he's introduced to us in the book of Acts. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Stephen a man who was put to death because of his faith in Jesus. He was stoned. And we read a little detail at the end of that text, read it quick, you might have missed it. And what it says is that those who were throwing rocks at Stephen came and laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This our guy. And what that means is he was taking responsibility for this event. And from there, it only got worse. He would go to homes and he would drag out men and women and children because he thought they believed in Jesus and he'd take them down to the authorities so that they could get into trouble. He's on one of these missions when we're going to come to the next major event in his life. Probably happened about 34 or 35 AD. He has obtained letters from the authorities to travel to Damascus to bring the Christians back so that they could be put into trouble. They could be put in prison and perhaps even killed. Now, I want you to see that the journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. It doesn't look big on our map. It looks like a tiny little thing. Don't be fooled, though. This was 100 plus miles. They would have walked it. Uh, for most people, it would have been about a five or six day journey. For Paul, it was more like four or five. So we're talking about a, basically a week. A week's journey to go and find these people and bring them back. And then about A.D. 34, 35, this was the year he's traveling to Damascus. And he's probably talking about his plans. And he's praying to God and saying, God, I'm going to be so faithful to you. I'll stop these Christians from from casting dirt on your name. And he's almost there. He's close to Damascus. And it's noon, which means he would be praying. And he has an experience. The experience is talked about quite a bit in the book of Acts. It's one of two stories told three times. The other story is Peter and Cornelius, which we looked at last week. This one is told by Luke in Acts 9. Then Paul himself tells the story in Acts 22 and in Acts 26. He's walking along, he's praying at noon, and all of a sudden he sees this blindingly bright light. Blinds him, literally, for three days, 72 hours. This blinding light, and then he hears this voice. And the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he looks up and he says, who are you, Lord? And it doesn't say this in the text, but I'm pretty sure he was thinking, please don't say Jesus. Please don't say Jesus. Please don't say Jesus. But the voice said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Long story short, Jesus said to him, stop it. Matter of fact, I'm going to turn you around. You're so concerned with making sure that nobody threatens the purity of Israel. I'm going to turn you into my delegate, my missionary, my apostle to all the nations, all the Gentiles. You're going to go everywhere as far as I send you telling everybody that salvation is now available through me. And you're going to suffer a lot along the way. And Paul said, all right, let's do it. So that started the next phase of Paul's life and it would last the rest of his life. He ministered on behalf of Jesus. And I want to show you a map for you to get a sense of what this ministry looked like in his life. He started preaching the gospel right away. But then after a time, he just kind of disappears off the scene. And we don't know what he was doing for about 12 years or so. Then he comes back in the mid-40s and he gets sent around on all these journeys. That's what you're looking at here. I don't expect you to be able to make sense of all the lines. I just want you to notice there's a lot of them. These are the four major missionary journeys of Paul that we know of from the book of Acts. Over 10,000 miles, most of which he walked. So he's going off to all these different places because he wants to go to places where people don't know Jesus and preach about Jesus and start churches. So he'd show up in a city and he'd start wherever he could. And he'd tell somebody about Jesus. And he'd tell some more people about Jesus. And eventually some people would say yes to Jesus. And so he'd plant a little church. He'd mentor some leaders, then he'd put them in charge. Then he'd go do it again somewhere else. This was his life. This was his mission. And it wasn't always easy. He tells us as much in one of his letters. He tells us that he actually experienced quite a bit of hardship, quite a bit of suffering. It was in Corinth that he's writing to. There were some people who were saying, eh, Paul, he's not that impressive. Eh, whatever. He's not that great of an apostle. They're boasting about their accomplishments and trying to make him look bad. And Paul says, you know what, this is a dumb game, but I'll play your game and I'll boast by talking about all of the things that show how much I need God's power in my life. And he goes off in 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, says, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I'm more, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led to sin and I do not inwardly burn? Now, Paul's not just complaining. He's making a point that if you want to look, about the, look at my life and ask, what am I most proud of? I'm most proud of the fact that I need God's help. And that the weaknesses in me leave room for his power to be made known. So Paul plants churches and suffers and raises up leaders. And he writes letters, 13 of them in our Bibles, about a quarter of our New Testament written by this person. That is his story. And it was a story he's happy to tell. He sprinkles little autobiographical tidbits throughout his letters. Now what do we see here when we look at the life of this man? What can we learn when we try to understand what his life might have to say to our lives? Well, whenever he told any portion of his story, he was very careful to do one thing. Deflect attention from himself and direct it towards God. Kind of like, duh, but no, he's really intentional about it. Anytime he goes back and talks about his story, he's not the hero of his story. God is clearly the hero of his story. He's not the one who determined who he is. God is the one who who got a hold of him and changed him. Let me just show you what I mean. I want to read to you from a couple places in his letters. I want to read to the first letter, and then we'll read from some of the last ones he ever wrote. Galatians is the first letter Paul ever penned, at least the one we have. Here's how he starts the thing. Paul an apostle, sit not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Like from the start, he says, you wanna know why I'm coming? It's because God sent me. I didn't wake up and decide to do this. God got a hold of me and he's the one to point to to help explain why I do what I do. He picks up the story. I wanna pick it up a little bit later on. Galatians 1 verse 11. He goes, he goes through and talks about his former life. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to console any human being. Paul says, look at my story. I was making a mess of everything. But then God got a hold of me. I don't owe my faith to some other person. I owe it to the God who got my attention. My story is his story. He says something similar later on in, in the last letters he wrote. These are a little bit more personal. He wrote them to Timothy, one of his protégés. First Timothy 1, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And if I could, let me read you one more. Last letter Paul ever wrote, very end of it. Here's what he says. Second Timothy chapter four, verses 16, 17, and 18. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul believed clearly that his story was best understood by looking at the God who made him what he was, by deflecting attention from himself and directing attention to God. I told you today that I'm going to draw our attention to one idea that has the power to shape how we see everything. Now, Paul articulated this idea in Romans 8:28. Maybe this is a verse you've heard. He says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now, I want to simplify the wording a little bit and put it in a way that maybe we can remember. Here's what I think we should see when we look at the life of Paul, God has a good plan beyond what we can see. God has a good plan beyond what we can see. And now let me be clear, this does not mean that God determines everything. That's not what I'm saying. That God's going to get his way no matter what. That our freedom is just an illusion. No, I think we've been given real freedom to choose to participate with God or to choose to reject him. And it also does not mean that there's some sort of blueprint for your life laid out in perfect fashion so that God knows ahead of time exactly where he wants you to go to school and exactly who he wants you to marry if he wants you to get married and exactly how many kids to have and when and exactly what companies to work for. I don't think that's the way it works. I don't think God's looking at you going, hey, see if you can figure out exactly what I want. No, not most of the time. I think most of the time, God gives us a broad range of possibilities. So my point is not that he has something exactly specific, the one and only thing he wants you to do today. I think he he tells you, generally speaking, here's the kind of person I want you to be. Now let's do life together. No, what I think this means is not that God prints out the details ahead of time, but that no matter what we choose, whether we make a right choice or another right choice or a wrong choice, nothing can happen that God cannot redeem for his good purposes. Nothing cannot take place that God cannot write into the story and make a part of his good plan beyond what we can see. Paul believed and his life illustrates time and time again that God has a good plan beyond what we can see. And I think this truth, if we rest in it, is something that can impact the way we view and understand and evaluate and feel our way through all of the various moments, many of them kind of ho-so, ho-hum, hum-drum, normal type things, all of the different moments that make up our ordinary lives. And for the rest of today, I want to look at how this truth plays out in some of those moments. Honestly, I want to look at how it plays out in some of the not so easy ones. This is true, first of all, when we have no control. You ever feel like you have no control? You ever look at a certain part of your life, your circumstances, your story, and say, I had nothing to do with that. There's nothing I could do to change it. Maybe it's the part of your story that's determined by other people. Maybe it's the way you grew up. Maybe it's uh, you weren't raised to worship God or follow Jesus. Or maybe you were raised in a very legalistic home where everything was all about the rules. Maybe it's the other side of things. Maybe you raised your kids to know God, but then they, once you, they got to a certain age and they had their freedom, maybe they went their own way. And now you're looking at it going, I don't, I don't know how to control this. Like, I, I, don't, I, can't, I can't fix this the way I want to. Maybe it's, maybe it's like when, when a tornado destroys one third of your city like that. Nobody has any control over something like that. There's a lot of portions of our story, if we're being honest, that we realize we, we can't manage, we can't like make this happen the way we want. And I want you to think especially about your growing up years. You didn't choose your mom or dad or lack thereof. You didn't choose your siblings or, or lack thereof. You didn't choose the home you grew up in, the city where you'd live, the personality that you'd have. You didn't choose your body. You didn't choose a lot about you. You just had nothing to do with this. You have no control over these various things. Now, come back to Paul's upbringing. He had no control over the fact that he was born into multiple worlds at once. Greek education, Roman citizenship, uh, Jewish convictions, believing in the Bible, serious about faith. Meanwhile, God had a good plan beyond what Paul could see. God knew from the start that he was grooming Paul for a very specific mission one that would require the kind of intelligences and language and cultural agility given to someone born in precisely these circumstances. And meanwhile, God is moving in your story, mostly behind the scenes, to bring about his purposes. God was working all things together for our good and the good of all. God has a good plan beyond what we can see. What are we supposed to do with this? Well, we're going to get practical next week. Promise. But for today, I just kind of like to focus on the truth. For today, let, let's just rest in this truth, be freed from our anxieties, and proceed with faith. This, this truth is also true. Number two, when we fail, have you ever stepped back from your life for a moment and looked at things honestly and realized, "Oh no, I, I, I messed this up. I didn't do this the right way. I didn't make the right decision." Maybe there's a certain chapter of your life where you just totally went off the rails, or maybe there's just one part of your life that has just always been a struggle for you. I don't know what it is for the different folks of us in this room. I know what it is for me. Maybe, maybe for some of you it's I know that I hate even mentioning these things. Maybe for some of you it's a divorce, And I am not saying, "Oh, it's your fault. it's not the blame game.'m I'm not trying to shame anyone. I've seen these things too up close and personal to think it's that simple. But I'd imagine for many of you, you think to yourself, man, there's some things if I could go back, I would do differently. Maybe there's a habit in your life, even an addiction, that just kept or even keeps getting the best of you. In spite of your good attempts, you feel like, in spite of your attempts, if I just keeps getting the best of you, you know? Or maybe it's less dramatic. Maybe it's the fact that you, uh, you don't really like your life all that much. You'd rather have somebody else's. Contentment is a pipe dream for you because you want somebody else's spouse, somebody else's car, somebody else's house, somebody else's job, somebody else's dream, but not yours. Or maybe you have enough, but you're fine with it. You just want more. Want more TVs, more cars, more vacations, more whatever. It's called greed. You know it if you're honest. Maybe for you, it's it's just that you sometimes think about the things that you think and the words that come out of your mouth, and you realize when you're thinking about it that you're just a little bit more centered on self than you'd kind of like to admit. I think sometimes it's hard to be honest about these things and maybe even impossible to be honest about them if it weren't for the truth that we're talking about today. Paul knew what it's like to look at your life and say, Oh, no, and his was worse than yours. Like, I don't care what you've done in the room. I think it's safe to say that this guy who wrote a quarter of the New Testament, his story is worse than yours. His failure makes yours look pale by comparison. He was killing Christians, okay? Like, unless you've spent a portion of your life actively persecuting believers in Jesus, you're better than him. And he recognizes like God was moving this way in history and I was on the exact opposite pushing against him. And meanwhile, God had a good plan beyond what Paul could see. God turned Paul around, and his life became exhibit A of God's mercy and patience and power and grace. I'll just speak personally. I would not understand God's grace if it weren't for the writings of Paul. And sometimes I wonder if Paul couldn't have written them this way had he not failed the way he did. And meanwhile, God is moving in your story, mostly behind the scenes, to bring about his purposes. God is working all things together for our good and for the good of all. God has a good plan beyond what we can see, and therefore we will rest in this truth, freed from our anxieties, and proceed with faith. This is true number three when we 're confused. you ever been confused? about uh, which way to go, which path to take, which college to attend, which person to marry or whether to get married, which job to, to go ahead and sign up for, or whether to just bang around on the drums all day. I don't know. Which kid to send to boarding school, whatever it may be for you. Or maybe it's just, it's not so much a decision. You just wish you understood God a little bit more than you, you wish you could have this one question answered and you just find yourself confused. Paul knows what that's like too. I want to look at a brief scene from the book of Acts. It's in Acts 16. This may be kind of morbid, but it's kind of one of my favorite parts of the story because Paul has no idea what God wants him to do. And I know what that's like. Acts 16, it's in his second journey, starting in verse six. Here's what we read. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And don't miss this next line. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. What? What? So think about this. Paul has said to Jesus, Jesus, I'll do whatever you want. Let's go. I'm in. Let's do this. He has one journey under his belt, so he's got some experience, and he's like, all right, let's start again. So he figures he might as well go back to Asia. Asia Minor, the place where he had success before. There's more people that don't know Jesus, and God's like, I don't want you to go there. Well, do you want me to go here? No, I don't want you to go there either. Where do you want me to go? Meanwhile, God had a good plan that Paul could not see. This way? No. That way? Nope. Then where? Oh, you know, Europe. And because he listened to this vision, you understand, this is the first time in history that the good news of Jesus Christ was preached in the region of the world where most of us draw our ancestry. I got Scotch-Irish, French-Canadian, and some Italian blood running through my veins. I'm kind of glad the gospel made it to Europe. Kind of glad these people heard about Jesus. I, for one, am glad the Holy Spirit told Paul no, even if it meant confusing one of my heroes for a while. And meanwhile, God is moving in your story, mostly behind the scenes, to bring about his purposes. God is working all things together for our good and the good of all. God has a good plan beyond what we can see. Therefore, we rest in this truth, freed from our anxieties, and proceed with faith. And lastly, number four, this is true when we are disappointed anyone ever been disappointed? Gosh, I think anybody old enough to know desire has lived long enough to know disappointment. Life didn't turn out the way we'd hoped, the way we'd expected. You didn't get what you wanted, what you dreamed of, maybe even what you needed. You know, Paul knew disappointment. Now you might not think his is a big deal, but it was a big deal to him you got to understand the only thing that matters to Paul is going to new places to tell people about Jesus. And one of his life dreams was to take the gospel to Spain. It's like, listen, we've covered most of the world I know. I want to go further west to this place where they don't know him yet we got people going south. we got people going east. We've gone as far north as we know. I want to go over here and tell these people about Jesus. And when he wrote the book of Romans in the mid-50s, he told them all about his grand plan to head to Spain, preach the gospel. said, I'm going to come visit you. I'm going to see you, be blessed by you, bless you back, maybe get some money from you, and then you can send me on my way to Spain so that they can hear about Jesus. had this great plan. He said, I just got to make a pit stop in Jerusalem real quick. Won't you pray for me that all goes well there? And when he went to Jerusalem, he got arrested. He spent two years north of Jerusalem waiting in a prison, and then he finally got to Rome and spent two more years waiting there while he was in house arrest. He didn't expect this, he didn't ask for this, and so far as we know, the trip to Spain never happened. Meanwhile, God had a good plan beyond what Paul could see. He didn't just sit around on his thumbs he waited and as this vision of going to Spain became less and less realistic, he decided to do something else. First of all, he told everybody he could meet about Jesus. If you're ever on a plane with this guy and you're an introvert, just look the other way because he is going to start a conversation with you and it is going to turn to the Lord. That's just the way it is. And he wrote letters. He wrote the book of Romans in part as a support raising letter for this trip to Spain that probably never happened. And while he was in prison in Rome waiting to see what was going to happen next, he wrote letters that became books in our Bible, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon. Anybody ever been blessed by those letters being in existence? Shoot, I know I have. And meanwhile, God is moving in your story, mostly behind the scenes, to bring about his purposes. God is working together all things for our good and the good of all. God has a good plan beyond what we can see. Therefore, we will rest in this truth, freed from our anxieties, and proceed with faith. Yeah, it's true. From one side, life is blurry. We may not be blind to what God is doing, but it's kind of hard to make out much of the details. Sort of like the back of a tapestry. You know, every couple weeks, or every, every time we do one of these services, a couple weeks before, uh, we send an email to the creative team with some different questions just to help plan the service. And one of the questions that they ask for is, um, any song recommendations? And I usually don't have any because I don't know these songs very well. At least like I don't have this running catalog. And I decided I'd just have a little fun. So I wrote as a joke, my God is so big. You know that song? You got kids over in children's church. They sing it all the time. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. From the mouths of babes, right? So today I think we'll just let our kids tell us the truth. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. So may we, Rest in this truth, freed from our anxieties, and proceed with faith, knowing that God has a good plan beyond what we can see. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.